is from here, uh, a native of Tennessee, a recent graduate, or I don't know how recent, Andy, but a, a graduate of Lincoln Christian University, uh, currently living in Peoria, and I understand that, Andy, has, you've just gotten back from a missions trip to India. How recently was that? Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> a little jet lag. We thank you for being here, Andy. Come and preach the word to us. Jet lag ain't no joke. <laughs> so if I pass out, just um, someone come up and do the invitation hymn and we'll finish it out. Well, it's an honor to be here uh, to our veterans and servicemen. Uh, we thank you for your service this Memorial Day weekend. And uh, I did grow up in Tennessee, and so um, a little ways from home. But um, I grew up in what's called the Tennessee Valley, and uh, it's surrounded by two uh, mountains on one side and a plateau on the other, and it's a beautiful place, and uh, when it rains, all the nutrients kind of wash down into the valley, and um, interesting in India this past week, um, a lot of the, the greenery and the lush is in the mountains, in the high range. But in Tennessee, the, the nutrients wash, um, are washed down into the valley, and a lot of the growth is in the valley. And I remember my dad telling me one time, he said, Son, growth happens not on the mountaintops, but in the valleys. And so today, uh, I want to talk about painful experiences and how growth often happens in the valley, not on the mountaintops. And just like there are mountaintops and there's valleys, there's mountaintop experiences and there's valley experiences. There's highs and lows in the Christian life. And sometimes life is going well. There's new jobs. There's new births. But oftentimes, uh, things aren't so well, are they? We lose a child. Uh, We lose a job. A relationship ends. And we begin to doubt the goodness of God. And when it comes to life, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to highlight the positive experiences and we hide our painful ones. And we boast about our positive experiences. Anyone on social media? Facebook? Like, not right now while I'm preaching. (laughs) Like, some of you probably are. Like these teenagers on the front row swiping their Instagram. But no one puts painful experiences on Facebook, do they? Like, when's the last time you saw a three-year-old with a Cheerio stuck up his nose on Facebook? Or a messy house? Or a vacation from hell? So, if we're honest with ourselves, we like to post the most gorgeous vacations, the newest remodels of our home, our kids' accomplishments on social media. We want to protect the image of ourselves, that we have it all together, And oftentimes we don't. We envy other people's experiences. Uh, We wish we had that car or that boat or that house. We wish we lived in that neighborhood. So every experience in life, good, bad, or indifferent, can be used by God to help others and advance his purposes. Now to illustrate this today, if you have your Bible or a smartphone, an iPad, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to look at a character in the Bible. He's one of my favorite characters. His name is Joseph. And his story uh, takes up most of the book of Genesis. Almost two-thirds. 
And so to set the scene with Joseph, here's a little background. His father was Jacob. Now, if you remember Jacob, Jacob was a sly guy. Uh, He stole his brother's uh, birthright. Um, He ended up marrying two sisters. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think it's a good idea to marry two sisters. Like, that just doesn't sound like a good um, idea. And so he marries Rachel and Leah. And if you know the story, Rachel, uh, the Bible says, was beautiful in form. And Leah was, uh, the Bible says, had weak eyes. And together they had 12 sons and one daughter and with two different maidservants. And uh, Joseph was one of the two sons of Jacob with Rachel. And so his brothers um, were sons of Leah, the one who was, quote, weak in eyes. And so Genesis 37, 2 picks up with these words. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy, the son of Bilhah and Zephah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we learn right off the bat that Joseph is young. He's 17, almost an adult in our age, but he's a boy. And we also learn that he's a tattletale. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I, I don't think many people like people who tattled on people. And not only was he a tattletale, he was entitled, he was spoiled, and obviously he was a favored daddy's boy. And it says Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Now if you remember the story from Jacob earlier in the the Bible, it also says of Jacob that he loved Rachel more than Leah. So you see this pattern with Jacob that he shows favoritism not only to his wife, but to his sons through Rachel. And so we know from earlier that Jacob, um, wife Rachel, whom he loved, and his dad Isaac are dead. And so Jacob is now just left with his sons, um, Joseph and Benjamin from Rachel. And Joseph had had this dream about his brothers that one day he would uh, rule over them and they would bow down to him. And they knew their dad Jacob loved Joseph and Joseph's mama more than their daddy loved them and their mama Leah. So do you see how the, the jealousy was starting to build and the bitterness was starting to build with the brothers of Joseph? And so the text says that um, they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And so he's the favorite son, which means he doesn't have to go out in the field and work. And so he's at home kind of just chilling with his little baby brother Benjamin. And one day Joseph sends, uh, Jacob sends Joseph to check in on his brothers and the flock and make sure all is well. And so he goes to Shechem, which is about 50 miles away, and he gets up there, and um, he, he's starting to wander around and try to find his brothers, and he meets a guy, and he says, he's not here, he's in Dothan, which is about 15 miles away. So he's 65 miles from home. And so when they see him coming, they say, hey, here comes Dreamer Boy. How about that for a nickname? Dreamer Boy. And so all the years of playing second fiddle to Joseph, 
all the hurt, all the bitterness is built up now, and they come up with a plan. And their hurt is going to give way to hate and then to harm. And so Reuben, the older brother, says, hey, I have an idea. Let's throw him in a pit. And he actually did this to kind of, um, he wanted to save Joseph later. And so uh, Judah has a better idea. He says, instead of throwing him in a pit, let's make some money off of him. So they see these Egyptian slave traders, and, and they're coming up in this caravan. And they ended up selling him for 20 pieces of silver. So two for you, and two for you, and two for you. Ten brothers. And so they throw him in this pit with no water, and eventually the slave traders come and get him. And now, if you're Joseph, you're feeling a little, um, how shall we say, depressed. So you're favored, the son. You've got this uh, coat that your daddy gave you, this special coat. Um, your identity is wrapped, wrapped up in this. And you're being caravaned down to Egypt. And the one security thing that you had to hold on to, the favoritism of your father is now gone. And you're in the hands of slave traders. And so Genesis 39.1 says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had brought him uh, from the Israelites, and who had who had bought him down there. And now Joseph has gone from the pit to the palace. And we read these words. The Lord was with Joseph. It's a phrase that occurs multiple times in the narrative. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, no, he's not. I was in a pit. And now I'm in a a slave trade. And I'm, I'm an Egyptian slave, and, and God is not with me. There's no way that the Lord is with me. And eventually, Jacob, or I'm sorry, Joseph is blessed by God because he is with him. He's blessed with favor, and he's touched with favor, and, and he starts to gain favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And in fact, Pharaoh puts him in charge, or Potiphar puts him in charge of his whole household. And so you think that things are war- war- warming up for Joseph. He's had a, a bad turn in life. He ended up in a pit, but now he's in a palace, so things are getting a little better. And then as Jimmy Buffett says, there's a woman to blame. So he ends up uh, in Potiphar's house. And 39.6 of Genesis says this, that Joseph was handsome in appearance. And after a time, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So apparently this guy was a pretty good stud. All she had to do was look at him and said, hey, let's go to bed. So one day, she begins to flirt with him. And he's like, you know, can't do it. You know, my master put me in charge of his house, but he's not put me in charge of you. And I can't dishonor him or my God. And so she continues to press and she continues to flirt day after day until a point where he doesn't even want to hang out with her, much less speak with her. And so finally one day she, um, she asked him to come into her room and the guards happened to be alone uh, in a way. And uh, she grabs his coat. He tries to flee. 
and she cries attempted rape. Potiphar finds out, and he's thrown into prison. So now he's gone from the pit to the palace to the prison. But we still read the words, the Lord was with Joseph. And if I'm Joseph, again, I'm thinking, no, he's not. Not only have I been in a pit, not only have I been unjustly accused of rape, I am now unjustly incarcerated in prison. And so eventually Joseph serves his unjust time. He gets out of prison. He interprets some of dreams of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh puts him in charge of all of Egypt. And there's a famine in the land. And so his brothers end up being victims of the famine. And so they have to come down to Egypt to buy grain. And guess who has to go before Joseph to buy grain? The same brothers who threw him into a pit. And so that's a great story in and of itself to read sometime. But in short, Joseph forgives his brothers. He reconciles them. He shows them grace. And they are reunited. So in the pit, in the palace, and in the prison, the Lord was with Joseph. And today I want to communicate to you, no matter what you're going through in life, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, no matter what season of life you find yourself in, if it's a good season, if life is going well, if your marriage is great, if your kids are being well behaved, if you're in a good season, the Lord is with you. But for those of you who are not in a good season right now, Life isn't going well. Your job may have been uh, ended early. A relationship didn't work out. Your children are going through a rebellious stage. God wants to tell you today, through his word, that he is with you. In whatever circumstance you find yourself in, the Lord is with you. And let me be clear here because I don't want to be misunderstood. The Bible talks about suffering. And suffering is not good. There's there's no way the Bible says that suffering is good. Suffering is not good. But the Bible is clear about this, that, that good can come out of your suffering. And so I have a couple of application points and then we're done today. Number one. Painful experiences exist in this life. Expect them. Nowhere in Scripture does the Bible promise a pain-free life. Scripture does not hide painful experiences. Rather, they highlight them. Both Old Testament and New Testament are filled with illustrations of people who experience pain in their life. And so I think one of the greatest myths of the Christian life that we bought into is that we believe as Christians that we are supposed to have a pain-free life. That life is supposed to go extremely well for us. We're not supposed to experience um, temptation or tribulation. We're not supposed to experience financial difficulties or health problems. We're supposed to have a pain-free, easy life. And that is far from the gospel. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, 
It's, it's famously referred to as the, the faith chapter, the hall of fame of faith. And we read these words that some of the prophets, and you have listed there prophets and, and warriors and kings, that some of them through faith conquered kingdoms and administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, remember Daniel, who quenched the fury, fury of the flames, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Keep reading. But others were tortured, refused to be released, so that they may gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. They were commended for their faith, yet none, none of them received what they had been promised. And since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us, we would be made perfect. Isn't it interesting? In the same chapter, you have not only people of faith experiencing great triumph and victory, but just a few sentences later, you have people persecuted and murdered for their faith. Here's some examples Job was righteous, but he lost all of his possessions. All the disciples except John were martyred. Thomas doubted. Paul asked three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. David lost a child of his. Peter was, according to tradition, crucified upside down. In fact, Jesus says these words in John 16, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That's a great verse to remember. That even though we have trials and tribulations in this world, that Jesus has overcome the world. And that's a great verse. But part of that verse is, Jesus reminds us that we're going to have trials and temptations. And we're going to have struggles in this life. We're not going to be escaping pain in this life. Here's a few stories uh, personally that I know of from real people with real pain. I know a family who buried their six-day-old daughter and still struggles with doubt and goodness of God. I think of the single gal or the guy who has struggled to find relationships and wondering if, if they're ever going to get married again. I think of the couple, couple who is struggling to start a family and has endured multiple miscarriages. I think of the persons whose marriage ended prematurely in death or divorce. C.S. Lewis writes these words in The Problem of Pain. We can't ignore even pleasure, but pain exists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he often shouts in our pain. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
So not only should we expect pain in this life sometimes, but secondly, we realize that our painful experiences often have a purpose that we don't always see in the moment. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says this, We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint. The word that Paul uses there for suffering, uh, it has this idea of like grapes being pressed and this pressing down. And for some of you today, maybe you feel like life is pressing down and you're being squeezed out. And the Apostle Paul, he knew suffering. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was almost stoned and killed on several occasions. He wrote the book of Philippians, chained to a Roman guard. And in fact, in the book of Philippians, there are 15 explicit references to some form of joy or rejoice in the four chapters in Philippians. Think about that. The Apostle Paul is chained to a Roman guard. Yet 15 times he he references joy or rejoicing in his suffering. I love this illustration about the oyster. Uh, It will get a crack in its shell, a grain of sand, a little pebble will get inside and irritate it, the soft flesh. But God has so designed the creature to excrete this liquid that will start to cover up the irritant. And it becomes what we know as a pearl. Here's the application. The treasure could never have been produced without pain. Rich actually says this, hurt people hurt people. But hurt people also can help people. You have scars. Some you admit, some you don't. But your scars are your stories of the encounter with the grace of God. And nobody can take away your scars, but you can give away your story. Remember Joseph in the prison? So he was down in the prison and he meets these two inmates, a baker and a wine, uh, a cupbearer. Now, uh, we know mostly what a baker does, right? Um, But a cupbearer is an interesting um, job. So if you were a cupbearer in the Uh, days of Pharaoh, your job was to taste the wine or drink before you gave it to Pharaoh. So in case someone tried to poison him, you would die instead of him. Now, who wants to sign up for that job? So while he's in prison, he meets a a baker and a cupbearer. And they have these dreams. They find out that, you know, um, he's a, a dream interpreter. And so they go to him and they say, hey, we're having these dreams. Can you interpret them? And he interprets them, and, and one of them, I think it's the, um, uh, the cupbearer, is having this dream, and um, uh, there's this symbolism in it about three days, and, and basically that uh, Joseph says in three days, you're going to be restored to your position. You're going to get out of prison. And the baker has the same kind of dream. It's about three baskets of bread, and, and birds come down and, um, and pick out the bread, And Joseph says, "Um, sorry, you're going to die in three days. And so, but interesting, Joseph sees them downcast and depressed. And he basically goes to them and he says, how's your day going? 
So instead of being self-absorbed in his own pain, he could have, he could have ignored the pain of them in prison and dealt with his own uh, unjust incarceration. Yet he comforts them and he asks them how they're doing. And so your pain has a purpose. You can help others. I think of cancer patients who are going through extreme uh, bouts of chemo who take it upon themselves to help other cancer patients deal with the same grief. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulations, that we may be comfort those who are in any trouble with the same comfort we have received by God. The word comfort there in this passage is the word paraclesis. The idea behind this comfort is, is more than just a soothing sympathy. It has the idea of strengthening, of helping, of coming alongside of in order to make strong. So it doesn't matter if you were born with a silver spoon or you grew up without a father, if you were sheltered or abused or neglected, no matter what your story is, you have one. And God wants to use your pain, if you allow him, to help others for his good and for your good and for his glory. And so finally, Painful experiences give us perspective. Embrace them. Joseph was about 17 when he was abducted. He spent almost 13 years in the court of Pharaoh, in prison. Yet he writes these words in Genesis 50:20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, at the time, Joseph had no idea that he would go from the pit to the palace to the prison. He had no idea what God was doing. He had no idea what God was orchestrating behind the scenes. And some of you today have no idea what God is doing. You may think you're in a painful season. You may think, God, I don't want to be here. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not liking this. You're not with me. You're not for me. But you and I have no idea that maybe five years from now or 10 years from now or three days from now or three months from now, God is going to do something. And you're going to look back and you're going to say, God, I see now that this painful situation that you had me in, that this painful season that I went through, that even though I didn't understand it then, now I understand it. And now I look back with hindsight and I say, God, you were with me. And you were doing good. Helen Keller, who uh, was blind most of her life, says this, that character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through the experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Our character is often developed in not times of Comfort, but in times of crisis. I close with this illustration. 
1988, a pitcher by the name of Dave Dravecki was pitching for the San Francisco Giants. In the fall of that year, he developed a cancerous tumor. And uh, it was found in his pitching arm. And after a year of rehab, uh, he came back and he thought it was a great comeback story. Uh, He was pitching three innings against, uh, I think it was Montreal, uh, a no-hitter. And about the fifth inning, he felt this tingling in his arm. And he threw this pitch, which at the time was known as the pitch heard around the world. And in one second, he split his humerus bone. The cancer came back, and his arm had to be amputated. His baseball career was over, and he would eventually be diagnosed with clinical depression And he spent 30 months in counseling. But he writes in his book these words, when you can't come back. God doesn't promise us a lifetime full of mountaintop experiences. There will be valleys to go through. Dark valleys. Disorienting valleys. Valleys of depression and despair. What he promises is not a roadmap that will give us a detour around those valleys, but that he will walk through those valleys with us. When we emerge from those experiences, we look back and we realize that there's, that is where the growth was. It isn't on the mountaintops above the timber lines. It's in the valleys. You see, some of our deepest valley mom- moments foster the deepest growth in our lives. The view in the valley isn't always pleasant, is it? But it can be productive. And sometimes we can't see the end of the story that God is writing. But hear me on this. Especially the young people in the front. Sometimes God is using your painful stories and your experiences for his glory and for your good. And you may not see it in the moment. But God is working. And so whatever season you find yourself in today, whether it's a high one or a low one, if you're on a mountaintop or if you're in a valley, the Lord is with you. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for uh, another day of life. We are thankful for your provision and your presence and your protection over us. And Lord, we all go through valley moments. We all go through seasons where we question the goodness of you and we question our faith. Lord, help us today. Give us eyes to see uh, that you are for our good even though when we don't think it is. Help us to trust you in the valley moments. Pray in Christ's name, amen. I have the privilege to close our service today, and I want to thank Andy for that message and uh, uh, made you think a lot. And Andy, I really appreciate that. I think you did a wonderful job, and we appreciate you coming. Uh, He's been just short of sleep 